As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, I have got a bonus today. An interview with me about the orphan vaccine story from a few weeks ago. I did this interview with a group at NPR who puts out a great podcast called Science Diction. First up here you can hear Science Diction's story about vaccines in general. It runs about 12 minutes. Then there's an interview with me at the end. Hope you enjoy. I'll be back Tuesday with a new episode of The Disappearing Spoon. Picture a fairy tale gone disastrously wrong, and there are cows everywhere. In one corner of the room, a man stares in shock at his own nose, which has sprouted a tiny cow. Meanwhile, a woman wearing a bonnet barfs out a cow. The man sitting next to her is covered in lumps that look kind of like pimples, but are actually, in fact, a bunch of tiny baby cows. A cow is crawling out of another guy's ear. A woman is sprouting a pair of cow horns. It is a cow palooza. And sitting at the center of this whole cow cacophony is a remarkably cow-free woman. She's white-knuckling her chair with one arm, and her other arm is in the grip of this really cold, nasty-looking man. And he's plunging a big, fat needle into her arm. She's getting vaccinated. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer. Today, we're talking about the origin of the word vaccine. This truly wild anti-vax cartoon was published in 1802, and the message is clear. If you get vaccinated, you are turning into a cow. Stay away. Obviously, we know that's not true, but it turns out our beloved bovine friends do have a lot to do with the origins of the word vaccine. And so did a person in that cartoon. The man smack dab in the middle of those vaccinated half-cow humans sticking the needle into that scared woman's arm. His name was Edward Jenner. 
and he would go down in history as the inventor of the smallpox vaccine. Smallpox. This disease caused tiny, painful pustules to pop up all over your body. And it is tough to overemphasize how devastating that disease was. Before we eradicated it, about a third of people who got it died. The British used it as biological warfare against the Native Americans. Smallpox was instrumental in the fall of both the Aztec and the Inca empires. It was bad. And for thousands of years, it seemed like there was just no escape. From farmers in Africa to Egyptian pharaohs, everyone got it. No one was safe. And people tried everything they could think of to protect themselves, from herbal remedies to prescribing 12 bottles of small beer every 24 hours. That was a real recommendation from a 17th century doctor. None of that worked. But a lot of people were doing something that did. Well, kind of. They were deliberately exposing themselves to smallpox. And the idea was that you would get a mild smallpox infection, but it would be much less severe than a full-blown case. People in Africa and Asia and pretty much all over the world had independently figured this out. There's even a story from the 1700s about a woman in Turkey who used to wander the marketplace with a nutshell. And inside the nutshell, she kept blisters from smallpox infections. And in exchange for a gift, she would infect you. Obviously, giving yourself smallpox on purpose was kind of dangerous. It didn't always work. People still died. It was also sort of gross. But it was the best that people had. Until Edward Jenner comes along. The story goes that one fine day... Edward overheard a milkmaid proudly declare, I shall never have smallpox, for I have had cowpox. I shall never have an ugly pockmarked face. Her words were ringing in Edward's ears years later when he decided to test this milkmaid's theory that if you had cowpox, you wouldn't get smallpox. Now, the milkmaid story, it's probably apocryphal. But it is true that Edward didn't just come up with this brilliant scheme by himself. There was also a farmer named Benjamin Jesty who definitely tested this out before Edward. We think that Edward probably just heard about this theory from locals who worked with cows in their everyday lives. But in any case, there was a definite logic to this idea. Smallpox and cowpox are part of the same viral family— The two diseases just manifest differently. Obviously, we know smallpox was serious. Cowpox, on the other hand, wasn't so bad. You usually just got kind of gross, but ultimately mild sores. So if this worked, if you actually could use cowpox to prevent smallpox, this was the answer. So for 30 years... That was the idea that was turning around and simmering in the back of Edward's brain. And in 1796, he finally decided to test it out. The experiment was simple. Edward needed just two things. A fresh sample of cowpox and a test subject. 
The cowpox sample, easy enough. Edward knew a young woman who lived nearby. Her name was Sarah Nelms, and she had a favorite cow. She was brown and white, and her name was Blossom. Thanks to Blossom, Sarah just so happened to have a fresh cowpox sore on her hand. The test subject was a little more complicated. Edward chose an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps. James was the son of Edward's gardener. It's not totally clear whether he did it as a favor or maybe the gardener just felt like he couldn't say no to his boss. But somehow, James wound up sitting in that room with Edward and Sarah. Edward scratched open James's skin, scraped some fresh material from the cowpox lesion on Sarah's hand, courtesy of Blossom, and he rubbed it into James's cuts. James got a mild fever. He was kind of uncomfortable. He lost his appetite. But then he got better. Pretty much standard fare for a case of cowpox. But then came the real test. About a month later, Edward took James aside again. And this time, he exposed him to actual fresh smallpox matter. And James didn't get sick. It worked. Edward exposed James to smallpox more than 20 times. And he never got sick. James was immune to smallpox. Just going to state the obvious here. Testing live viruses on an eight-year-old kid breaks about a thousand ethical rules. But it went down in history as the first official scientifically documented vaccination. And today, we know why Edward's experiments worked. Here's a quick recap from biology class. Since cowpox and smallpox belong to the same family, once James was infected with cowpox, his body was able to develop the defenses to kick it. And then, once he was exposed to smallpox, those same defenses were able to say, oh, hey, yeah, we recognize this, and nip it in the bud. So, here's where we get the word vaccine. Edward wrote up his findings in a report called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Varioli Vaccinae. In Latin, varioli means pustules. And vaccini means essentially something that comes from a cow. So varioli vaccini basically means cow pustules or cowpox. And for a long time, the word vaccine was used specifically to talk about using cowpox to prevent smallpox. It wasn't until almost 100 years later that it came to mean more. And it was thanks to Louis Pasteur. He was a really big fan of Edwards, and he wanted to kind of honor him. So when Pasteur created the rabies vaccine, he suggested that we start using the word vaccination to mean anytime we inoculate against any infection, just like we use the word today. Smallpox was eradicated in 1980, about 200 years after Edwards sat down with James Phipps. We went from this disease that killed so many people to something that's just gone, kaput. And that's not all thanks to Edward Jenner. All those people across Africa and Asia, that woman with the blisters and the nutshell in Turkey, the farmer who first guessed at the cowpox solution, they laid the foundation. But Edward rigorously tested it, and he wrote it down. 
And he really dedicated himself to the cause. He didn't just run tests and publish papers. Decades after his famous experiment, Edward kept doing the hard work himself, giving out vaccinations to local poor kids for free. I can't get this image from Edward's later years out of my head. In the garden of his country house, in the shadow of some yew trees, sits this little stone hut. And that's where he would give these vaccinations. It's got a thatched roof. It's decorated with these big chunks of bark from forest trees. Honestly, it looks kind of like a toadstool. Or like a smurf hut. But there are stories of kids lining up all the way through Edward's garden, down the block, and into the nearby town, all waiting for Edward to inoculate them. The man who helped end this truly horrific disease would sit in that backyard hut, devoting himself to this cause that he believed in above all else. He called the hut the Temple of Vaccinia. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Today, science writer Sam Keen tells us about a very old, very effective and ethically dubious vaccination program. In this case, what they chose to do is use orphan children to bring the vaccine across the ocean. I'm Johanna Mayer. This is Science Diction. Around this time last year, we put out an episode on a word that we have all said a lot 
over the past year. Vaccine. It comes to us from the 18th century, when a doctor named Edward Jenner found out that you could protect people from smallpox by giving them cowpox, what he called in Latin variole vaccini, which meant pustules of cows. Cowpox is not pleasant. You get pus-filled sores on your arms or your face. But then, after you recover, you have immunity to smallpox, which was killing a ton of people at the time. And Jenner had found this incredibly simple solution. All you had to do was take someone with cowpox, pop one of those pustules, take out the lymph fluid, aka pustule juice, and stick it in someone else. And they were vaccinated. Easy. But having a vaccine and actually getting it to people around the world, very different problems. And if you thought getting shots into arms was tough in 2021, try doing it in the 1800s. Yeah, they didn't have refrigerators, dry ice, all the things that we kind of take for granted nowadays. Sam Keen, science writer and host of the Disappearing Spoon podcast, here to tell us that story. Within a town, it wasn't actually that hard to spread. They would essentially take the fluid from a cowpox sore and they would scratch it into the arm of the next person. And nine or ten days later, that person got a little pustule, took the fluid from that one, scratched it into the next person's arm, and so on. So that was a fairly straightforward, if a bit laborious, process. The real challenge was getting it over very long distances, over an ocean or something like that. So when Spain decided they needed to get this vaccine to their colonies in the Americas, they had problems. First, they tried just transporting it as dried pus. That had worked for shorter distances, but this trip was just way too long. The virus wouldn't make it. So eventually, what Spain in particular decided to do was use living creatures. And in this case, what they chose to do is use orphan children to bring the vaccine across the ocean. They got 22 orphan boys, and they gave them cowpox in pairs as they sailed them across the Atlantic Ocean. What do we know about what it was like for these boys on the ship? It was not a fun journey for them. It was November on the North Atlantic Ocean, which would have been cold, blustery, probably rainy, not a comfortable trip. They were also being taken out of the only home that they ever knew and being sent to a land that they had never seen before and that they'd probably, you know, only heard stories about. So I'm sure it was a very scary experience for them. And on top of all that, they were being uh, given this disease, cowpox, which wasn't as deadly as smallpox, obviously, but still they were giving them a disease. And to me, sort of the most maddening part about the disease itself that they had to endure was that it's a pox. It's really itchy. And the boys, though, were not allowed to scratch the pustules because they had to let them grow, let them get nice and ripe, and build up enough fluid in order to make sure that they could transfer it to the next boy in the chain. So you had nurses snapping at them not to scratch their arms, and it must have been a really miserable experience overall. And do we know anything about any of the specific boys? Like, how old were they? Do we know any of their names, even? I haven't seen any reference to any of their names. 
We do know that they ranged in age from about three years old to nine years old. And the thing I keep going back to is imagine trying to explain all this to a three-year-old while you're crossing the ocean with them. I mean, I just can't uh, fathom what was going through that kid's head while they were dealing with not being able to itch, getting snapped at. They're on a boat suddenly, taken away from the only place they've ever known. So especially for the younger ones, this must have been a pretty traumatic experience. Besides the glaring ethical issues, there were also practical challenges with this scheme. If you infected all the boys with smallpox at once at the beginning of the trip, they'd probably all recover by the time that you got to your destination. No pox left for vaccinating. So they came up with this strategy of staggering the infections. They'd start with one pair of boys, infect them with cowpox, wait for them to develop pustules, then use that to infect another pair of boys in a chain. A warm chain. 22 boys in all. They calculated that that would be just enough to get them across the Atlantic Ocean. And they cut it pretty darn close. Uh, By the time they got to, they were going from Spain, they ended up near modern-day Caracas in Venezuela. By the time they got there, they had one sore left on the arm of one single boy. So they barely made it, but it was enough to get there and start vaccinating people in modern Venezuela. So if that last sore had popped, would it have all just been totally for nothing? It would have been for naught, yeah, the entire voyage, yeah. And they had already run into, Spain and other countries had run into this problem before with other failed uh, attempts to get it across the ocean. So this could have been just one in another long series of failures. I mean, was there any discussion at the time about this being an unethical thing to do? Like, was there any concern about that? Or were people just like, eh, they're orphans, they have no ties to the society, whatever we need to do to get rid of this disease? I don't think, I mean, obviously they didn't think about medical ethics in the same terms that we do nowadays, but... I do think they were weighing a couple of things, which were that there were huge apocalyptic outbreaks of smallpox in the Americas that they had to deal with. They were giving the boys cowpox, which, again, is less deadly than smallpox. So they weren't giving them the disease. And in fact, they were making them immune to the disease. And life in the orphanage, if they had stayed there, probably was not going to be very rosy. They had very Mm -hmm. few prospects. And one thing, one incentive they gave the boys in this case, I just don't think they had a lot of choice, but one thing they did to make it a little more palatable for them was they told them that when they got to Mexico, they would be adopted into a good family there. I think they figured that this overall would end up being a better life for them, however traumatic it might have been in the short term. And again, that's not how we would think of things nowadays. We would think of them more as autonomous people who should be able to make their own decisions or wait mm-hmm. until they're 18 so they can, you know, have a little bit more adult reasoning and figure things out. But those were the considerations they were dealing with at the time. So what happened when they landed in Caracas? Can you describe the scene for me? When they landed, they no doubt grabbed that boy, jumped off the ship, found someone immediately talked them into it, explained what this was, and started vaccinating them. They really didn't have a moment to lose, because if that lymph disappeared, then the entire expedition would have gone for nothing. After Venezuela and after Caracas, what happened next? Where did they go? 
The expedition kind of split into two at that point. One group went south into South America, and the other group kind of went north up through Mexico and across to the Pacific coast. So they took the boys north through Mexico City, dropped them off, got to the Pacific coast, and then one of the groups actually sailed across the Pacific to Spanish colonies in the Philippines and even went to China after that. So really, they got this vaccine around the world in less than a decade, which for the time was really an amazing feat. And what happened to the orphan boys? It's a little unclear. They definitely got to Mexico City. Uh, they got to their new families. And then after that, they kind of disappear. It's not really clear what happened. It's really wild thinking about how there are people in the Americas today who are probably descended from these 22 young boys that, you know, were the first carriers of the vaccine over here. Yeah, they, they really made a, a big sacrifice. Something we're talking about a lot today is vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers and I mean, thinking about when they landed in Caracas for the first time, you have to admit that it does sound somewhat suspect. So like a ship pulls up in your city, a bunch of kind of mangy little boys who have just spent months at sea tumble out of the ship. Mm -hmm. And this guy that you've never met is telling you, hey, we've got this brand new strange medical treatment for you. I just need to rub some pus from this kid's arm into yours. Trust me. Like, how do people react in Caracas, when that ship showed up, how did they convince people that this was real? Well, one thing they did that was actually pretty smart was they stuffed the boys with food on the voyage over for exactly the reasons uh. that you're talking about. Because if they had stumbled off the boat looking sickly and weak, no one was going to let uh, pus from their arms be injected into their children. So one thing they did was they really did try to uh, keep the boys looking hale and hearty on the voyage over. And a lot of the people there uh, had grown up in Europe, so they were probably aware of what vaccines were, getting, you know, letters, messages, things like that from people. So they might have been aware of it, but it was still a leap of faith for them when uh, the head of the expedition showed up and they just kind of had to trust that this would work. The South America expedition was actually really interesting in that there was kind of a mixed reaction in some places. The villages themselves were very excited to see the people. Uh, they often had bullfights. They were ringing cathedral bells, uh, saying masses in their honor, stuff like that. So they were really happy because they had seen firsthand how bad smallpox could be. But there were doctors there who were actually grumbling about this and actually opposed it because they were making a lot of money off of giving people probably ineffective smallpox treatments. So the doctors in this case were actually the ones kind of opposing it. Was there any sort of public information campaign about how vaccines worked? You know, you see today all sorts of explainers and articles. Like, how did they frame this then? I think basically it was a choice between life or death. And I don't mm -hmm. know that there was as much hesitancy considering how bad smallpox was. As I said, I think a lot of people were eager to get it. But one thing they did that was pretty interesting was they set up vaccine boards in every uh, place they went to keep records, uh, to keep lymph around, basically to ensure that if another outbreak came, they could be ready and vaccinate people if new people showed up, as the next generation came along, stuff like that. Uh -huh. So they did think these things through. And that's why some historians say it really was a very modern vaccine campaign in that sense. 
Is it possible to estimate how many lives these 22 orphan boys essentially saved? So there are different numbers in different historical documents. So these numbers come with a a big grain of salt, but they vaccinated up to 12,000 people in Caracas, 200,000 people as they were moving through Colombia, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador, another 100,000 people in Mexico, and then something like 20,000 people when they sailed eventually to the Philippines. So if you add those up, that is something like 350,000 people they vaccinated directly, and then you stopped outbreaks from spreading. So you could reasonably say, you know, at at least that number and then possibly millions beyond that that they saved from outbreaks. It's just really an amazing story of how, how, how they got it spread around the world this quickly and this effectively in less than a decade from when Edward Jenner discovered it. So I'm kind of in awe that they were able to do this, uh, given the very limited tools that they had. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. Sam Kane is a science writer and the author of The Disappearing Spoon. He has an entire episode about this story on his podcast, also called Disappearing Spoon. You can find it now wherever you get your podcasts. Science Diction is produced by me and Ella Fetter. Ella's our editor and senior producer. Our composer is Daniel Peterschmidt. Nadia Ortelt is our chief content officer. See you again soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.